So we're going to be in Zechariah 12 today, continuing in, in Zechariah, and we're, we're in this season of Advent, but when you, when you look at, so you probably wonder, like, why aren't we going to talk about the birth of Jesus? Well, well we are, because Jesus was coming to earth to, to fulfill prophecy, to, to pay for the sins of his people, to redeem his people from their sins back to the arms of the Father. And Zechariah was really given that hope to the people who were uh, cut off. They felt like they had been removed. They had been removed from their land for some time, and it just felt like uh, the promises of God were now just a distant memory of the past, and yet they were still before them. The, the, The Lord was coming, and they had to wait for the coming of the Messiah, and now we have the privilege of looking back, yet looking forward. And when we look at chapter 12, what we actually see is the second advent of Christ. That is the second coming of Christ. It's prophecies of, of Jesus' coming back. It also talks a little bit about his, his first advent, but um, that's what we're going to see here in chapter 12. So if you all would follow along in your Bibles, we've got them in the baskets um, along the rows. If you want to grab one, uh, feel free to do that. Again, we've got scripture journals uh, with Zechariah on one page and a note-taking page on the other. That's our gift to you in the cafe. But chapter 12, verse 1 reads, it says, The oracle of the Lord, word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among the sheaves. And, uh, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah." On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the uh, feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadadramun and the plain of Megiddo, The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves." 
On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning, church. Let's be in an attitude of prayer. Father God, we thank you for your promise. We thank you for your protection. And we thank you for your provision. We thank you so much for sending your son to die in our behalf, to take the cup from us. God, we thank you that even in our unfaithfulness that you remain faithful. And Lord, as we uh, look to the birth of Jesus this month in the season of Advent, God, I pray that we would remember also the second Advent of Jesus that we look for, we hope for, we know is coming. And God, I pray that we would, we would be prepared and we would remind people of this coming, that they may also be prepared. God, I pray that you would sanctify us according to your likeness. And God, those who are apart from you, you would draw them to you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as we look at um, this passage this morning, uh, we see the second advent. We see um, that God's people were uh, distant from him. He's using, uh, as he often does, using the prophets to draw his people back to himself. We've talked about that throughout Zechariah. Anytime we've been in a prophet, um, one of the, the prophets, whether major or minor prophets, we see that God is using them to pull them back to holiness, a holy way of living, that which God has called them to and saved them to. We, the church, should also be looking to his word that we may not be like the world and that like our flesh, but that we may be like that of God who came in the flesh, that we would be like Jesus. We wouldn't just be um, just, just these people who talk about him, but people who, who seek after him and delight in him and his word, right? So that's what we, we have to, to look at here in this passage is, is that to be like Jesus, to, to be more like Jesus, to look to our Savior who didn't leave us helpless and hopeless. All of this, this book, you see um, the context in, in this book and many other books that, that their position, their disposition was, was a, one of unfaithful behavior, right? Faithless acts and useless works. But God didn't give up on them. And chapter 11 talked about being, being led to the slaughter, that there's this, this worthless shepherd that's going to lead God's people, and all the shepherd is doing is leading them to the slaughter, like there's, there's no hope to be led by the world and the, the useless shepherds who deny God and his, his word. But we have hope here in chapter 12. Our first point as we look at this passage is our Lord is powerful. Our Lord is powerful, right? We need to understand the magnitude of the greatness of our Lord, right? Like how magnificent and how powerful our Lord is. We, we tend to think, and, and myself included, that, that God is just this distant being, but we don't have a distant God. One of the things that separates Christianity from any other religion is the fact that we have a very relational God that didn't just create us for a relationship and fellowship with one another, but he longs for fellowship with his creation, Right? We are separated from him. The only reason we're separated is because of our unholiness. Right, That it, we are so unholy that we can't be in his holy presence. And one day we will be. One day we'll receive glorified bodies and enter into a sinless state. But until then, there's a separation. But God longs for that relationship. He even sent his son. And after the, the, the um, this ascension from, of Christ leaving this earth, what did he do? He poured out his spirit that he may dwell inside of those who believe. And praise be to God for that. Our Lord is 
powerful. And notice how this, this passage starts. It says, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. That's, literally, like, that's how it starts. Before you get into anything that's going to happen, it starts with the power of our Lord. Right? The, the position our Lord holds as creator of all things. So we are here in this very first verse of chapter 12. We are given a foundation for our foundation. Right? For everything that we believe and everything that we walk on, everything physical, those things seen and unseen, we have a foundation. And that foundation is our Lord who created all things and is now the cornerstone of his church. Amen? We have to understand this about our Lord, that he is powerful. And not just say it, but church, do we believe it? And now if we believe it, we'll live it out. We will act and live and breathe and go out and talk and interact with the world as if we believe that Christ is powerful. If we truly believe this, we will live like it. We'll live like our Lord is in control of the situation that we find ourselves in. We will live like the Lord is in control of all the things that Fox and CNN have to present to us on the news. We will live like God is in control of that situation. When, when a new leader is voted in, we will live not in fear, but in trust that our Lord is powerful. The same God who spoke all things into existence is sustaining all things by the word of his mouth. Christ is our Lord. He is our creator. Hebrews 1.3 gives us a picture of this, this strength of God, um, our Lord Jesus. says He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his what, church? Power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Church, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now think about that for a minute. Like literally just think about like Jesus upholding the universe by the word of his power. Like what is the greatest thing you can do with your words? I mean, sometimes I just like will make a hole in the wall and I just yell at it, just hoping something will just change, right? Like just hoping like fix it. Close my eyes and then I just pray someone in the church shows up and they know how to fix the hole in the wall, right? Like I, I had a flat tire this past week, got a hole in it. You already know where it's going, Dan. Uh, Dan's like, can you quit talking about me? I'm like, you have to quit hanging out with me and quit doing good things, right? Taking care of me, all right? Uh, so... I had a hole in the tire. I go in. I grab Dan. We were trying to leave his house. And like, hey, man, I got a hole in the tire. Like, kind of like hopefully thinking he'd just go out and just do it, you know. But he didn't, which is good. I need to learn. Got to learn how to, I'd never change a tire. I usually just get a new car, trade them in and out before I ever have to, have to do that, right? Carvana would take my car and get a little money in my pocket and get a new car. And then same thing. It's just a rotation. So then I finally had to change a tire. It was just completely flat. The greatest thing Dan could do with his words in that moment was like, Michael, you got to put your back into it, right? He couldn't be like, by the word of my power, make those bolts come out of the, the tire, right? He couldn't do that. He had to say, Michael, you're going to have to put your, your legs into it. And I was like, why? Right? Why can't I? And I had to get down and I pulled up and it was just like, I was so sore and just like my muscles were tight. And just, wow, it's crazy. And then we read this passage and we think about, about all of our strength or even our weakness, right? 
And like what we have to do to have that kind of force and have that kind of power. But what it says of Christ our Lord is that, first off, he spoke all things into existence. Nothing was created that wasn't created through him and for him and by him, right? But then it says that he is upholding, he's sustaining the universe by the word of his power. That is how powerful our God is, that he doesn't have to take protein shakes and get strong, that it's his word. He is the creator of all things. There is none like him. Do we understand this power? Now, it's tough to wrap our minds around it, right? Because we can think of like the strongest person we know, and, and they, don't even, they don't even come close to the power of our Lord. Colossians 1.17 says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. See, our Lord is not just the creator, he's the sustainer, because, church, he is that powerful. Right. He's sustaining. And this is what, you know, we even talked to, to the youth about a few weeks ago. And, and I'm sure that we've shared this this same kind of sentiment statement. But even when we talk about the scriptures, like how can you trust the scriptures? Right. We say that they're infallible and they're original language. What does that mean? It means that they're, they're not able to have any error. It's incapable that they would have any error. That's infallibility of scripture. Right. Now we say that they're not infallible, but they're inerrant. That means they're capable of error because they've been translated, but they are without error. How can we say that? Because God is powerful. Like, if we believe that God is not a God of confusion, why would God write his word and let us mess it up? Now, there's some messed up translations out there, right? Like the Jeff Jeffersonian, you go there and you got the Jefferson Bible and he's, he's ripped out pages. He's, he's done the original copy and paste of the scriptures, right? And he's, he's kind of made it his own. People have twisted the scriptures that way. But we believe that God has sustained it. And the reason we know that God did that and can do that is because God is powerful. And by the word of his, his mouth, right, he is sustaining he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We can trust in God because our Lord is powerful. Our Lord will also subjugate. That is that our point number two, that our Lord will conquer all. Our Lord will conquer, right? And this is something that they needed to hear because they had been the ones being conquered. They were the ones that were run out of the land that God had promised to them. They were the ones that, that had been separated, not just in distance, but like literally out of the land and away from the temple that was now destroyed and laid a wasteland. And they're here given this promise that God will conquer all. And, and maybe this is something that we, that we need to hear too, because when we do turn on the news, when we're on Facebook, which has become like a, a source for all bad news, right? Like I don't see like any, any good news. And I'm like, what do, like, what is your all's algorithm here where like I'm just getting bad news, right? Like I like happy news. I like, I like useless news. Just get me, get me out of it. Like tell me about like the, the kitten that climbed the Eiffel Tower and like got stuck up there and like Luke and Michelle adopted it because they heard the story and like just needed another cat, right? Like to give me, those are the stories that, that I need in my life, right? Right? Like these, these happy stories, right? But we need to hear that, that all of these things will be placed under the feet of Christ one day. Like he, he reigns on high, but he's coming back to conquer. And indeed, church, there's nothing that's going to stop him or thwart his plan. Nothing. He will conquer. 
There's nothing that is or will be higher than our Lord. Look at the promise that they receive here, starting in verse 2. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding places. The siege of Jerusalem will, be, will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. We're given here two pictures, a cup of staggering and a heavy stone. I want to talk about those for just a minute. So Jerusalem will be that of God's wrath to those who oppose her. That is the cup of staggering. The cup of staggering in the Old Testament was this idea of, of God's wrath, that, there's, that God has a cup of wrath that you, like, you don't want to drink, right? Like that, it's this, this, this imagery that those who have it will face the wrath of God. Isaiah 51, 17 says, Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. So they would have understood this imagery, right? They would have understood what the cup of staggering was. That's what I want us to be able to understand here also, what this cup exactly is. Jeremiah 25, 15 through 17 Says, thus says, uh, thus the Lord, sorry, the God of Israel said to me, Take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Again, you get this, this imagery of this cup. It says, The cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations whom I send you drink it. They'll drink it, and what do they do? Stagger. So you get this cup of staggering. It's this closely related idea to that of God's wrath. So, so I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Church, the question here is who can take the wrath of God? Who can take the wrath of God? No one, none of us can take the wrath of God. And there's eternal punishment, those who will have the outpouring of God's wrath and the separation, this eternally uh, separated uh, place uh, described as that of gnashing of teeth. Church, it's hell, right? And we know that that's not a place where you want to be because the wrath is poured out for all of eternity because that's what our souls require for our sins is that wrath. That payment. And those against God face this because our sins put us at odds against the triune God. This is not the cup that, that you want to receive. And what God says, it says, those who come against you, all the surrounding people, they will face this. I am about to make Jerusalem. They would be that of wrath. To those who oppose them. Again, we need to understand it's not just because they oppose Jerusalem, it's because Jerusalem was God's place of God's people, right? And those who opposed them were opposing God. This is so important. This is why we also get the word it's not that the church is perfect people, but what did Christ say of his bride? The gates of hell will not prevail against her, right? Nothing will stop the church, the church will stand and remain forever. 
Who will remove Jerusalem? So you get this, this cup of staggering, but then you also get this, they will be a heavy stone. On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. It's like, think of like a, a big mass, right? This big object that you've tried lifting in your, your past and you just, you try and lift it up. Maybe, maybe you're, you're able to like actually pick it up. Uh, the Dubois family, they had these huge stones that uh, Jeremy didn't want to move, but um, Crystal wanted to move, so they got moved, right? Like, that's how that works. If you're not married yet, that's how that works. Just go ahead and just tell you. Like, when your wife wants something done that you don't want to do, then you do it. And you do it happily, even if you hurt yourself, right? And I'm just an in-law, and I found myself in the crossfire. But also, us men, this is the way we are. That stone should not have been picked up by one person, but I saw it as a challenge, Right? And I'm like, I'm going to pick up this huge stone. Um, and I've got the video. I made Krista get it off of her like, little camera that caught me picking it up. And she was like, whoa. And I think she's probably like, Jeremy could have picked that up like, way easier. But I picked it up, and I, I get it. And I'm like standing, I'm walking, I just throw it where it needs to go. And the next day I paid for it, right? Like, and it says, it says this about Jerusalem. It says there will be heavy stone for all the peoples. Not a stone that's not able to be picked up. Jerusalem could be attacked. But it says, all who lift it will surely, what? Hurt themselves. It's not a good idea to mess with God by messing with his people. It's not a good idea to be at odds against God at all. Who will remove Jerusalem? Who will pick them up and displace them again? Who's going to remove them from the city again? No one. See, church, the only reason they had been taken captive by their enemy was because God allowed it to happen. The only reason they were ever defeated was because God allowed them to be temporarily. God promised them, though, Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. What have we to fear, church? What have we to fear? He will not leave or forsake you. He goes before you. This is the promise that, that Jerusalem was receiving. They were receiving this, this word from the Lord that they were about to become a cup of staggering, that they would be a heavy stone to the people. They wouldn't be moved again. My dad in high school just thought it was really fun to move around, right? Like my parents, uh, he didn't like find it fun. and just life situations found him. He had to move, right? Should recap that. He didn't find it fun either, but we got, we got really good at this. But you know, it gets so tiring like, to move. So in ninth grade, I helped my dad move. Like, my parents, they, they split up, and uh, we moved. Within, like, nine months, my, my dad moved in with another lady. And let's move. Three months later, it wasn't working out, so we moved out. A month and a half later, he's paid a year. He's got a year's lease. And he says, everything is working out. So we moved back in. Three months later, he's like, it's actually not working out. I knew how to load a U-Haul truck so fast, put everybody's clothes where they needed to be, box everything up, unbox everything. This isn't a pity party, by the way. This is a business idea. If you all need help, um, <laughs> I've got it down. I can get, you give me the bags and the boxes, and I got you. We, we had it down to a T. But you know how unfun it is to be displaced, just to like keep moving around? And this was the promise for God. You will not be moved. You are my people. Some of us look and we're like, well, Jerusalem got wiped out in 70 AD. This is the promise of the second advent of Christ. There is coming a day, church, where the city will thrive and the people of God, the church in Jerusalem, all people under Christ as the head, 
will be united and we will rejoice and praise him forever and nothing will stop it. We look for the second advent. Church, what do we have to fear? Look, look as it continues on in verse 4. It says, On that day, declares the, the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its riders with madness. This is like crazy, by the way. Like You want to talk about like God has a precise plan. You all seen like videos of horses going crazy? It's like the meanest thing you could do to a rider, like just make their horse go nuts. Like horses are, they scare me, right? Like they go crazy. This is, I will strike every horse with panic and its riders with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open. When I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness, then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. They, we, we know, church, where our strength comes from, right? We conquer because Christ conquers. Christ conquers because Christ is the powerful one who came to die for his people, proving his power, proving his deity in the flesh. And God is powerful and God is conquering. It goes on. I mean, we... You can read uh, verses 6 down to 9 that we, are, we already read, and you see over and over the conquering of Christ. And it was precise. It was with precision. His conquering had to do with his people's souls. This conquering is not just that of a, a militant behavior of, hey, I'm just going to wipe out those who I created because they're just not good enough. It's, no, they're unholy. They don't want me. They don't desire me. I'm going to give them to their sins. And I'm going to save for myself a people. Praise be to God that he conquers our sin and conquers thus our enemies. Don't let that take you away from speaking the gospel to your enemies. Church, this is the second advent of Christ. When Christ comes back, it will not be that of, of coming and, and giving life. It will be like, hey, did you receive the life? And if not... There's eternal separation. Because our Lord is also our propitiation, point number three. We go and we tell people about this because Christ is not just, just coming. Christ didn't come at the first advent to leave everybody just scattered and, and confused and, and mad and militant. No, he came so that we would receive life. We would have it abundantly. And in that life, we would go tell people about life in Jesus. We would go tell people that there's no need to be separated for all of eternity because Christ paid it all. Jesus took the wrath of God that we deserved and could never take on our own. That is the good news that we are not left, left hopeless and helpless. But we are left hopeful, longing for Jesus to come back. Church, that's why we sing, come Lord Jesus, come, right? Like Jesus is, is saving his bride. He's not left us helpless. He's not left us hopeless. He's given us joy. He's given us mercy. He's shown us grace. He's shown us compassion. And he is our propitiation. That is our payment, right? He paid this, uh, the price for his people. He paid for our sins, paid for our souls by washing away our sin. Verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him 
as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. Theologians, they understand this as metaphorical um, in the original context, but directly related to Christ whom they actually pierced. Now, metaphorically speaking, it's that, and that God is pierced to the heart by his people's unfaithfulness. It's not just that they pierced Christ in the side, which we'll get to in a second. It's that God is actually pierced to the heart by his creation turning away from him. Like every time that, that we turn from God, every time that we're unfaithful, it pierces the heart of our God. But then Christ literally was truly pierced in the side. John nineteen thirty four. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. See, for God's people, they'd pierced Christ, but they mourn. That's the difference. Look, I will pour out, he says, on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that those who receive that grace and that mercy would not rejoice at the death of Christ, cheering as though they'd just killed a criminal, but rejoicing at the sacrifice of Christ. And in that rejoicing, there's this mourning because we know what God has done for us. He took that cup. And it talks about this, this, this only child, right? It's, it's painting this picture of what this mourning really looks like. When we, when we understand what Jesus did, we celebrate, but then there's this mourning. It's like this bittersweet thing because we know that Jesus had to do it but it's sad that Jesus had to do it. It's sad that we placed him on the cross, even though we weren't there literally. Our sin pinned him to the cross and poured out his blood. His blood had to be poured out because of our sin. And it's like it's terrible, but that had to happen. We celebrate what the Lord did, but it leads us to repentance. There's that, that mourning and that celebrating. Those who receive grace and mercy understand the reality of the sacrifice of Christ. We understand that at his first advent, it wasn't just, just some good person coming into the earth to do some good things. We knew that it was the Lord in the flesh coming to die and take the wrath of God for us. See, church, Christ is our payment. He's our propitiation. It had to happen, but it's bitter Sweet. And then it goes on, it says, On that day the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning of Hadad Ramon and the plain of Megiddo. It says, The land shall mourn, each family by itself. It goes on to talk about this house and the wives, this house and the wives, this house and the wives. Everybody is mourning what had happened. And this mourning is, is, is described as something that affected everyone. You'll like know like there wasn't a dry eye in the room, right? Every, like those moments where it's like you listen to a speaker and like just everybody is just moved by it. It's like um, back in, in 9-11. And it didn't matter where you were, what you were going through. It didn't matter who your neighbor voted for or what they voted against or voted for. 
there was this unity that everybody was just mourning what had just happened. There were other countries reaching out and to, to American citizens and, and expressing their, um, their love for the people here. That they too were mourning what we were going through. We look overseas and we see bombs flying. We know that there are people made in the image of God dying. Entering into eternity, being redeemed to the Father or separated from the Father. And those things, they move us. And it's sad. And all the people hurt. That's how this mourning is described. That everybody felt it. Everybody would feel the piercing of the Son of God. But it says in 13 verse 1, On that day there shall be a what, church? fountain. There shall be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to what church? Cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Church, this is the the living water. right? This is the fountain of life that was being established. That this fountain would be opened for the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Jeremiah 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. The fountain of what? Living waters. And hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. We see Jesus in John 7, 37 through 39. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet Glorified. Jesus was establishing this. The Lord was showing his people that this living water would be established and life would pour out from it and pour it eternally. Nothing would stop the flow of this water. Nothing. This fountain was to be established for God's people. And they needed this. They needed to hear this. They needed this hope. And church, we need this hope too. Band, you can come back up. We're going to wrap up. And what we need to realize is that Jesus is that life, and we have to deal with something. The wrath of God needs to be poured out. But to those who repent and believe in the gospel, Jesus drank God's cup for you. And praise be to God for it. Praise be to God that Jesus took that wrath for us. Now, this is the most difficult thing to have to swallow here because Jesus did this for us. And it's not just drinking some cup. It's not a metaphorical thing. Jesus took the wrath of the Father you. What we would face for all of eternity, Jesus faced on the cross. Luke 22, 41 through 42. Church, we need to hear this this morning. Those who believe and those who don't believe. Luke 22, 41 and 42. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus isn't saying this cup just tastes terrible. Jesus knew what he was getting ready to drink. 
Jesus knew what he was getting ready to face. Jesus, God in the flesh, says to the Father, if we can let this pass, Father, let it go. If you are willing, Father, remove this cup from me. Because in that cup was my eternity, was your eternity of wrath, of outpouring of God's wrath, and Jesus took it to the cross and paid for it. What do we have to do to pay that back? Believe in the Son of God. Believe in the Son of God and be redeemed into the arms of the Father. What do we have to do? Believe. You can spend all your life trying to figure out the, the magic potion of just how, how, can I, how can I pay for my sins? Nothing. You can't do anything. You can work as hard as you want all your life and pay for it, right? No, can't do that. Well, you can be poor, give whatever you have, be a good person. That won't get you there either. You have to believe. Believe in Jesus. Believe in what he did. Repent of your sins and believe in the Son of God who has the power. I mean, think about the power of God that God the Father raised the Son from the dead. Think about the power that our Lord will, um, will subjugate everything, will conquer everything. Everything will be placed under his feet. Think about the propitiation, the sacrifice. That God is so faithful that even when we were still sinning, he came and died poured out his blood for people who didn't want anything to do with him, people that would reject him, people that would take him to the cross, whipping and beating him, only to see the skies turn and see the earth groan. Church, we look to the first advent in this season. We look at how Jesus came into this world so that he could redeem his people by the outpouring of his blood. But we know that the second advent is coming. Church, that is what we look to. Don't get so caught up in looking to the past of what Jesus did to forget what Jesus is going to do. There is coming a day of Armageddon. There's coming a day of judgment. And those who are against him will be separated. And those who have trusted in him will be united. Praise be to God for what he did. Church, go ahead and stand. We're going to sing one last song to him. If you believe in Jesus, praise Jesus in your singing. If you've yet to surrender your life to Christ, now would be the time. What you need to do is you need to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. I'd love to talk to you more about Jesus if you have questions about him. This is not a game. We don't just gather here on Sunday mornings to feel better. Usually I, I leave feeling like a sinner, right? It's not always happy-go-lucky, but praise be to God that he saved us and is sanctifying us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this morning that we've had and the presence of one another and you, our God. I pray that you would just be with us this week. God, would you lead us? Would you show us those who, whom you've placed in our life that we need to share this message with? God, I pray that we would be faithful to invite them uh, to our Christmas service to hear about the first coming of our Lord. But God, I pray that in our ongoing relationship with those people, we would tell them about the second coming of Jesus. We would be faithful to, to share that Jesus is coming back one day in judgment. And we don't know when that is. We're not playing around with Father Time. We're not, we're not playing around with you. God, we need to be faithful. Would you give us 
your spirit to, to guide us in faithfulness, to be obedient, give us the strength as we go. God, I pray for those who are hurting right now, God, that they would trust in your promises, knowing that you're protecting and providing and working all things out according to your purpose. God, we pray for those who are sick this morning in our church family and, and in the area, God, that you'd be with them, grant them health. God, I pray in all that we do that you'd be glorified in this season and in all of our life. Father, thank you for your son, for being our propitiation and coming not just once, but coming again one day to redeem us in the fullness. Father, we love you and we praise you and ask all these things by the power of your spirit in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's sing.